I want to thank J.D. and Tim for opening the Word of God uh, to us the last two Sundays in our study of John. Uh, last week, in the first part of John 5, Tim showed us the conflicting agendas of the religious establishment and that of Jesus in response to suffering humanity, those whose goal was to promote and protect their religious power and standing not only ignored the plight of fellow human beings in the interest of preserving their man-made rules, they also actively hated Christ because He came to save broken people, and He claimed to do so as an act of God Himself. If you think about it, the whole value of religion has to be its connection with what God is doing. And when it's disconnected, it not only ignores God, because, but becomes an enemy of God as well. So don't be surprised when you see the same kind of characteristics that were in the first century, when you see them in our own times in much of organized religion. Human beings haven't changed and religion that has its focus in the wrong place and wrong purpose hasn't changed either. But remember that Jesus hasn't changed either. He is still saving broken people, and it's because of that we have hope. Whatever flaws we see, whatever evils we see, even among those who promote religion. So we read in verse 18, and this is the verse that Tim ended with last time, and it'll be our leaping off verse today. In verse 18 of John 5, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. This is not all the Jews, but the Jewish leaders, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So, here's the core issue. Is, is Jesus equal with God or not? Because if He's not, this would have been a perfect time for Jesus to clarify the situation for him to disabuse them of their thinking that he was saying that he's equal with God. He could explain that they were wrong, that he was just a prophet doing the will of God. He was just a teacher from God, much like John the Baptist. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doubles down. He claims not only to be doing what God wants him to do, but that the works He is doing are what the Father is doing through Him in perfect harmony with Him. God the Father is at work on the Sabbath, and so is God the Son. They are one in essence and in their purpose and in their activity. They work in perfect harmony. And then Jesus goes on to list ways that He and the Father do divine work together all the way to the end of the age. His claims are unparalleled. Listen to how Jesus talks about His unique relationship to God the Father as God the Son. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son 
and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Now, step back a moment and think how shocking, how electrifying Jesus' words sounded to this gang of sophisticated religious enemies that day. They had to have been apoplectic. And Jesus is not done yet, as we shall see in the coming weeks. But as I read this passage, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's words in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And we see that in these verses just piling on as Jesus makes the point, yes, you heard me say that I'm equal with God, and that's exactly what I am, and you haven't seen the half of it yet. In verse 20, he talks about his astonishing works. In verse 21, his resurrection power. In verse 22, the fact that God the Father has given him the authority to exercise universal judgment. In verse 23, that that means he should be given divine honor. And in verse 24, he leaves us with this encouragement that he has saving authority. Now, you look at that list, and there is no way that any mere man, and certainly not any good man, can make these kinds of claims unless, unless they're actually true. Consider with me first the astonishing works he talks about in verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows himself all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. God is not detached from his creation. He is at work creating, sustaining, providing, 
healing, revealing. You do realize this is a different notion of God than many people have, that God's way up there somewhere with no connection to creation, with no interaction to it. That is not the true God. God is at work in ways beyond our vision and our understanding, but Jesus, God the Son, sees all that God the Father is doing, and Jesus predicts that there will be greater works yet that the Father will give to Him, like giving life to the dead, not just ending death, but reversing it. What Jesus will do will display power and authority that is astonishing, like no other human being has accomplished ever. And he will do this as proof of the unique love of God the Father for Jesus, God the Son. And he will do this so that you, and the you includes not just believers but unbelievers, may marvel. He taps into one of the three main terms used for miracles. This one underscoring the amazement and the astonishment, the wonder that's produced in those who see the miracle firsthand. The other two terms are sign, the message of a miracle, and power or miracle refers to dunamite, dunamis, the power, the supernatural level of ability that's required to do the particular deed. Now, people sometimes argue that miracles are unscientific and therefore cannot be. But that's not really thinking through the topic. First, the scientific method is based on observation. Biblical miracles were observed and recorded by first-hand witnesses. They are not unscientific. They were observed by multiple reliable witnesses. Miracles don't happen except when they happen. I mean, the point is that they don't happen. That's what makes them a miracle. Second, the reason they're called miracles is that they display power, the, the miraculous power, the dunamis, that is beyond the norm. Otherwise, we wouldn't call them miracles. Third, people take such unusual displays of power as a message from God, and that's the point of the miracle. If they were ordinary, no one would take note or see them as significant. And John frequently talks about Jesus' miracles as signs, that is, miracles with a message, the message from God regarding who Jesus actually is. And finally, people marvel because miracles are not expected. By definition, the onlookers are astonished. They're amazed by miracles. They call them wonders. It's the natural and appropriate response. Now, for there to be that effect, there has to be a cause. That only makes sense. That's scientific. The miracles Jesus did were not run-of-the-mill, business-as-usual activities, normally human beings, not even the most religious human beings. There's a big reason, this, there's a big reason that He and His earthly ministry are still remembered and celebrated. These works were at a level that proved Him to be God, not just a man. And Jesus says that's exactly the point. Don't miss it, and don't reject it. If Jesus did no miracles, then all we have is a fairy tale. The whole gospel is a fairy tale. Fairy tales may be entertaining, but they can't save anybody for real. 
nor would anybody be willing to take this good news and take it to the ends of the earth, even if it means persecution or death. So it's easy to dismiss miracles, to preserve your naturalistic preconceptions, but you leave yourself scrambling to explain why these records of miracles exist at all and why so many reliable people testified to them, including Jesus himself. If miracles don't happen, Jesus is a liar. He's not God. He's not a Savior. And Christianity is totally empty. But the miracles are real. And Jesus pointed to them as proof of who he actually is. They were astonishing works. I think it's important for us to step back here and think this through. Why is it important that the historical records show that Jesus was not just a great teacher, but a great miracle worker? And I'd like to give you the answer to that in part. What we need is a miracle. We, we need somehow to escape the sin that's part of who we are. We need somehow to escape the death where all of us end up. Every member here at Hampton Park ends up in a box in the front here, and we have a funeral. If we don't have miraculous power, that's the way it ends. There's no hope. So we need more than a great teacher. We need a great miracle worker. In fact, that's exactly what the gospel is. It's saying God is working this miracle. And and by the way, think about it. If God actually exists and and he's the infinite God, then miracles are his stock and trade. I mean, miracles are his business as usual. And this is why we have hope. It's important. And then what significance did Jesus himself give to his miraculous works? He didn't just say, "Oh, oh, it's nothing. Oh, people make up those stories about me. No, he actually took those miracles and pointed to them as proof of who he actually is. Second thing that we see in this passage, verse 21, is resurrection power. This is one of those astonishing works. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And you say, well, resurrections, I mean, is that raising people from the dead, is that even possible where we have eyewitness records of persons that were raised from the dead? We look at the Old Testament, Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son from the dead. Elisha raised the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. And in fact, there's even this interesting account of a man tossed into Elisha's grave who came back to life. Jesus raised from the dead the daughter of the synagogue ruler, He raised from the dead the son of the widow of Nain. He raised Lazarus from the dead. There are many that were raised from the dead at his crucifixion and walked about. And then finally, he himself was raised from the dead. Peter, in the power of the Spirit, raised Tabitha or Dorcas from the dead. And finally, Paul, after having killed a guy, having preached too long, That's why we have a time limit, because as far as I know, none of our pastors are working miracles lately. Um, Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Now, Jesus is not saying here just that resurrections happen. 
despite the skeptics who were not present to witness them and who disregard the testimony of those who were there, he is saying that like God the Father who raises the dead, that he, Jesus, has the authority to raise from the dead whomever he chooses to make alive. He has the authority and the power to give life to those who are dead, and he does so, and it is his will to do so. This is at the core of the good news of the gospel, because it seems as if death always wins in the end. Everything we love, everything we are, dies. If no one can reverse death, we are all doomed, and there is no hope. Jesus declares that he reverses death. And he does so more than once, including his own resurrection from the tomb, and he declares that he will raise yet more in the great harvest at the end of the age. That changes everything. That makes the end only the beginning. You walk through any cemetery and you look at the gravestones and you'll see a beginning date and you'll see an ending date. The end. All the power, all the glory, all the laughter, all the good times, all the accomplishments, done. And a hundred years after you die, very few people walking the planet will even know your name. The end. But not if Jesus raises the dead. The end is the beginning. So as a dying person living in a dying world, how does it change your perspective to know, to be assured that death does not win and that Christ gives life to the dead. You might have terminal cancer. You might have just said goodbye to a person you love more than anyone else in the world. You, you, you look at all your accomplishment. You see your body aging before your, uh, your eyes. Every day you get up in the morning and look, and you, you start, at first you see your dad and then you see your granddad or grandma, as the case may be. It changes everything to know that there's life beyond the grave. And since there is life beyond the grave, as Jesus declares, where are you putting your focus and efforts now? And are there ways that that should change? If you're going to take that long view, if you're going to look at death as, yeah, that's an event that we go through, because of uh, the curse of sin on the planet and on us as human beings, but that's not the end. Life continues on. Jesus is going to raise me from the dead. How does that change my perspective then on the things that I'm doing right now? Where am I going to put my efforts? And there's more than just a resurrection. There's also judgment for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, universal judgment. Jesus said of himself that he is meek and lowly of heart. 
He did so in the context of inviting those who were weak and heavy laden to find their rest in Him. But let us remember the context in which He said those words. In that passage, Matthew 11, He says that the Father has handed over all things to Him. He says that no one knows the Father but the Son and the one to whom the Son reveals Him. He says that it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Capernaum, where he had made his hometown, where he had done his miracles and his teaching. In other words, in the very context of Jesus talking about coming to him to find rest, he also says, I'm the one that reveals to you the Father, and he also says, I'm the judge. So you have a choice in front of you. You can find your rest in him, or you can rebel against him and face the consequences. Jesus is not a milk toast Messiah. Refusing to come to him carries a heavy price, and because he came in humble human form to save us and paid the ultimate price to do so, Jesus also has the final say at the end of the age. Refusing his salvation has a sort of in-your-face disdain for what he has offered to us. Jesus the Messiah is the final judge, exactly as Daniel reveals him to be in his vision of the Son of Man who comes from heaven with the Ancient of Days at the end of the age. In Daniel 7, we read these words, As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So we're talking about serious judgment here. Thousand thousands served him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. There's record-keeping going on. And then he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of the heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people... Nations and languages to serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You look at all the great kingdoms of the age. You look at all the great empires. They rise and they fall. This kingdom will never fall, and this king will always reign. Jesus talks about this judgment as he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, says to me, so he's the judge, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? We were part of the religious crowd. We showed up on Sunday mornings. We went to the mission field. We did amazing things. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what was the issue with these people, these religious, respectable people? 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. In other words, judgment came to test it and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, not as just someone who knows a lot about biblical things, but as one who has personal authority and to whom we will answer at the end of the age. It blew them away. So how should you and I be living today, given that we will answer to Jesus as judge of all the earth? And who or what ranks highest in your estimate of why you do all you do. What, what actually motivates you? I'm, you know, we're motivated by a lot of lesser things, and appropriately, but, but ultimately, what is actually driving how you live and what you do and why you do it? Because with this in view, it needs to be Jesus. It needs to be for Him. And that leads us to the next concept He teaches in verse 23, and that of divine honor, that all may honor... You notice how these are connected, that all may honor the Son because He's the judge, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, let's think about honoring God. Honoring God is, is treating Him in, in keeping with His true value. It's valuing God at, his, at, at the proper estimate. It's, it's the essence of worship. When we Worship. We are ascribing worth to God. We're saying, you are valuable, you are honorable. We recognize it, we revel in that. Failure to treat God as God is the definition of ungodliness. And this is at the root of all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is the failure to obey God's standards of right and wrong, but at its heart, is a failure to honor God as God. The disobedience comes from a failure in worship. So when I do what I know God says I shouldn't do, or I don't do what I know God says I should do, behind that is a low estimate of God. I'm not honoring Him as God. This is what Romans 1 teaches. For the wrath of God is revealed, it's being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, that's the failure to worship, and unrighteousness, failure to obey, of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress, hold down the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to him. How has he done that? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Everybody knows at the core of his or her being that there is a powerful being that made all this happen, that it couldn't just have randomly happened. It doesn't even make sense. That's not scientific. 
There has to be a cause for an effect. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows because of their own conscience that there's some kind of moral law in the universe, and where there's moral law, there has to be a judge. So they're without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. The foolishness of dishonoring God actually reduces my ability to perceive reality. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They started worshiping things that were less than human beings are because they refused to worship the God who is far greater than human beings are. Dishonoring God comes from deliberately suppressing the truth He has revealed about Himself. And in like manner, Jesus revealed His true identity through His words and deeds. To ignore all that evidence is not an act of rationalism, but of rebellion. It is not just a sin problem. It's a worship problem. It's refusing to honor God as He has revealed Himself to be. So many talk about God, many pray to Him, especially in trouble, and say that they worship Him when it's popular to do so. But the true and living God sent God the Son, Jesus Christ, to earth. It is verified history. If you dishonor the Son whom the Father sent, you are dishonoring the Father. You dishonor Him when you won't take from Him what He offers you. You are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth when you reject Jesus. That's what Jesus taught. Since human beings were created by God in His image, what does honoring God look like in your life? Because like you think about your life, in what ways are you intentionally like honoring God, treating Him as valuable? And then how does focusing on Jesus help you worship God for who He really is? Remember, He's the Word. A word carries a thought and makes it understandable. Jesus made God understandable to us. How does focusing on Jesus help you worship God for who He really is versus as human beings merely imagine Him to be. How many times have you heard people say, oh, I think God is this way, or I think God is this way, or I like to imagine God is that way. Well, who cares what you imagine God to be? Who is He? How has He revealed Himself? And Jesus has revealed God to us. Verse 24, He says that He gives saving authority. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. To hear Jesus' word is to listen to it and to take heed to it, because you believe in God the Father who sent Jesus to save us from our sin and from our eternal judgment. Our condemnation as sinners by birth and by choice, is as good as done. We are under an inescapable death sentence. We are condemned already. John has said that that way already in John 3. So unless we cast ourselves on God's mercy given to us exclusively through Jesus Christ, the sinless God-man Savior, 
then we have no hope. He alone took our sins to the cross and paid for them in full on our behalf. A person, a person who listens to Jesus' words, who believes in how God sent him to save us, that person will never come into judgment because judgment has already been rendered. Jesus has already borne God's wrath for us. There's nothing more to pay. That's why we are passed from death to life, because death is the wage of sin. It's the payment for sin. If the sin's already been paid for, there's no more wages to exact. Through faith in Christ as the one whom God the Father has sent on our behalf, we have, we already have eternal life. We will never die. Jesus said essentially the same thing in John 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. This is just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She understood. Mary and Martha both understood that the role of the Messiah was to be Savior, that he is the God-man, that he has saving authority. So with all that threatens you and, and all that you hold dear, how does knowing that Jesus offers you complete and forever safety affect your courage and your hope? And if you don't listen to the words of Jesus or believe in the Father who sent him, how do you ever hope to stand in judgment or escape death? I tell you what you're probably thinking. You're thinking that you're hoping beyond hope that death just ends it, and it's like going to sleep and then that's it, and that you'll never have to answer to God. That's a lie. Every one of us answers to God. We are not self-created, and we answer to our Creator. If you don't get your view of Jesus right, you can't get your view of God right, and you are left with no hope of release from the condemnation of sin and the tyranny of death. But if you will listen to His words and believe in the God who sent Him, life is yours forever. No condemnation. Death is done. You're completely free. All of this because of who Jesus actually is in relation to God the Father. They are working in perfect harmony, Father and Son, and astonishing works, resurrection power, universal judgment, and therefore we ascribe to them divine honor, and he gives to us, by his own authority, salvation forever. What a Savior. What a Savior. Let's pray. God, these are things that Many, if not most of us, have believed a long time. 
But God, we believe them not because they're Sunday school answers. We believe them not because it's just been our tradition to do so. We believe them because of the testimony of Jesus Christ himself as to who he is and what he's done and what he will yet do. And so, Lord, we are reminded once again of why we worship Jesus and why we should do so. And so, God, my prayer, my prayer is for each of us, those of us who have trusted him, that we will worship Jesus the way he deserves, that we, that we will perceive the work of God even at work in our life and in our day. And Lord, my prayer is that you would open the eyes of the blind and that even among those who like these enemies who heard these words of Jesus on that day, even among those who have rejected Jesus and have turned against God himself, that, God, you would break the rebellion and bring them to repentance, that thou would bow the knee, that they would humble themselves at the cross before it's too late, for it's in Christ.